Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock locked up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. There's 
visual evidence. There's evidence all over the place about what has occurred, what has happened to us, the atrocities that has happened to our people. We already know. This has been a long time coming. This is deserving. You are deserving of this. We've already paved. Our ancestors paved the way for us. And it's hard for black folk here to believe it. This has been a fight for over 500 years. It's time. The time is now. America must atone for what is taking place to our ancestors. And they're here for that atonement. This is our country. This is our land. To restore our dignity back is a beautiful thing. We're pushing for reparations across the country. That's my main reason for being here. In health care, we need help. In education, we need help. We need to address housing. And we also need financial, financial compensation. I don't believe that it is totally African Americans' fault that they are poor. This was set in place from years ago. And we were brought here as slaves. We have purposely been kept away from money. We've purposely been kept away from the American dream. This is the process that you have to go through in order to get where you're going. And thank God we're finally doing it. Land is the most important because if we spend the money off, what, what, we ain't got no land? No, we need land. This is about the voiceless and it's about our future. You know, our future with our kids, you know. So when we leave here, we just gonna make sure that we did something. Now, not everyone approves of this. Critics say that the plan is impractical. Some even say that California was not a slave state, so why should California taxpayers pay the price? But of the dozens of people that called to weigh in on the meeting today, one person voiced opposition. We have developed an entitlement mentality, and never has it been put on display more than with this disgraceful reparations board. The task force is still trying to determine some things like definitions, uh, things that like who should be considered a California resident to get reparations and how long should they have lived in California. And the task force, they are meeting again tomorrow and they have until July 1st to make that final decision. The task force will then make recommendations to the legislature. And again, if you want to weigh on this, that QR code is on your screen. You can scan it. Let us know your thoughts and we look forward to hearing what you think about all this. All right, now to our next story. Tonight, for the first time, we are hearing from Sacramento County, the Sheriff's Department, and former Sheriff Scott Jones after they were named in a lawsuit saying that they violated a man's civil rights. We're talking about Sharano Singley. He died in the hospital after Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies arrested him and left him unconscious in December. The Sheriff's Office says that they were responding to a report of a man under someone's truck in Sacramento County. Singley's family says that he was in the middle of a mental health crisis and was searching for his daughter's home who lives in that same neighborhood. In this video, it shows Singley initially complying with deputies, but then a struggle ensued. By the fourth minute, Singley appears unconscious. And we really have been following this story from the very beginning. Uh, four months later, there still is an official cause of death, and we've only seen the angle of one body camera. So I want to go ahead and bring in Devin Truby here, who's also been following the latest on this case. Well, Alex, the family filed this lawsuit all the way back in February. We are just now hearing about these violations. They, you know, they filed for civil rights violations, federal violations. And what we found out today when we looked over all those documents is that the county, sheriff's department, and former sheriff Jones, they want all of that dismissed. 
I want all of the body camera footage to be released. I want the 911 call to be released. I want the officers to be held accountable. On the day the county responded to the Sharano Stingley lawsuit, his daughter Diamond addressed the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors, who did not respond to her request to talk about the case. Is that an agenda? Okay, I'm going to take a, uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to recess, recess the meeting right now. We will stand in recess. The meeting being called into recess. We met with Mark Marin, the attorney representing the Stingley family, for his thoughts on the county calling to dismiss. He said this is the typical response of the sheriff's office under Scott Jones. They were acting pursuant to the policy, practice, uh, and custom that Sheriff Jones had perpetuated. And the county's response to the lawsuit, they want to dismiss the violations of civil and constitutional rights against former Sheriff Jones. They say it's redundant because the county and sheriff's department are named. The documents also state that the lawsuit fails to identify a specific training practice by the sheriff's department. They permit uh, in confined spaces, they, they permit control holds, they permit uh, having a knee on the back, the neck, and the head, which, which should have been reversed and revised years ago. The response also says they failed to show intentional discrimination to the family's claim of Stingley's mental health disability. They observed somebody who was clearly mentally ill. Recognizing that someone's mentally ill means you, you should have to accommodate that condition, which means you back off, you act more slowly. The county's points conclude on any reference to George Floyd for this case is irrelevant. The awareness of the need to respect people's bodily integrity and to, and to stop putting pressure on their airways should have been clear to the sheriff long before. That's why we compare it to uh, George Floyd. So, Alex, the Stingley family has 30 days to respond to this, and they plan to. Then it'll all go to court, and a judge will decide if this whole lawsuit gets dismissed or not. A court appearance already set and scheduled for May 4th. And then the law firm representing the county, we did reach out to them to hear their side as well, but we did not hear back. And this all happened back in December, but we still don't have a cause of death. We, still don't ha we only have that one body camera angle as well. Can you give some clarity or insight as to why this is taking so long? Yeah, I spoke with the county coroner today, and they said this remains an open case. So they are waiting on a toxicology report before they decide to determine that cause of death. And they said, quote, cases with toxicology and or ancillary tests ordered by the forensic pathologist usually take six to nine months to close. If the decedent died three months ago, there was no unusual delay. But we checked in with the crime lab for Sacramento County, and they mm -hmm. quoted us that a toxicology test on average takes about 41 days. So a little discrepancy there. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the deputies for a second because are they still working? Do we have an update on them while this whole investigation is going on? I spoke to the Sacramento County Sheriff today, mm -hmm. and while we still do not know who these deputies are that were involved, we do know that all of them are working actively within their assignments and that there was never a period of leave for any of them. All right, thank you so much, Devin. We appreciate it. All right, after the break, a life-saving drug now available without a prescription. How making Narcan more accessible can be a game-changer against opioids. Young people and kids across our country and right here in Northern California are being killed by accidental fentanyl poisoning. Like 17-year-old Zach Didier, he went to Whitney High School in Rockland. He died after taking a counterfeit pill laced with fentanyl. And 20-year-old Talia Newman, she had the same fate after an accidental fentanyl poisoning late last year. 
Something that could have saved their lives is Narcan. And if you haven't heard of it, it's a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. And today the FDA approved the sale of Narcan over the counter. And some of our communities that have been ahead of this movement, they are like the Sacramento City Unified Campuses. They made Narcan available. Staff were actually trained to use it in case of student overdoses at school. And bills have even been proposed in the state legislature to require all public schools to carry Narcan. We spoke to a pharmacist today who's told us, quote, easy access to this allows community members who purchase them to make good decisions for themselves. And tomorrow, I'm speaking with a mother who lost her child to a fentanyl overdose. Their teenager bought Percocet unknowingly laced with fentanyl. So we will have that story right here tomorrow on To The Point. All right, coming up after the break, there is still a chance the Kings have a way to the playoffs if they win in Portland tonight. So we're there with a live look at all the excitement. All right, we just can't talk about it enough. The Kings have another chance to make it to the playoffs. And when you – sorry, I'm <laughs> It's been a long day. It's been a long day. Hopefully they make it if they beat the Portland Trailblazers tonight. Kevin John is on the ground in Portland to give us a look at all the action. Yes, I'm here inside of Moda Center where the Sacramento Kings are less than 30 minutes away from potentially breaking the longest playoff drought in the NBA. If you're counting, it's 16 seasons, especially for you Kings fans. It's been 16 long seasons in 17 years. But tonight, the Kings can officially clinch a playoff berth and clinch home court advantage throughout the playoffs with a win tonight. Now, here's the good news. If the Kings lose tonight, they still have an opportunity to get into the playoffs. They would need the Timberwolves or the Clippers to lose tonight. But one thing is for sure. There are a lot of fans from Sacramento who made the trip out here to Portland for this game. I'm sure you guys will probably hear them all the way from Sacramento as well. And, of course, we will have a full recap of this game coming up at 11 o'clock right here on ABC 10. Man, I wish I was in Portland tonight. All right. And it's King's Fever back home. We have uh, a Lysa Beer Beam. We have Lysa Beam Coffee. We have Beam Shirts. We have everything Beam that you could ever possibly think of. And ABC 10's Luke Cleary is live in downtown Sacramento. Luke? I want to see the beam lit tonight, don't you? Oh, yeah. Everybody here, I think, would love to see the Kings win tonight. A lot of excitement as fans begin to trickle in here. We're at Punchbowl Social, one of many places in Delco where people can catch the game, where they've got ice-cold beer on tap and big TVs where people will be able to watch their Kings play. We also just so happen to be steps away from the Golden One Center, where Unfortunately, on Monday, the Kings just were not able to seal the deal. They fell to the Timberwolves. And, you know, what we're kind of seeing outside, this dreary, rainy sort of weather is, I don't know, uh, maybe kind of uh, appropriate for the failure to just kind of get that storybook ending at, in front of a home crowd. But again, they can do it tonight. This is a great vantage point where... We'll actually be able to see the beam get lit up. And uh, I tell you, Devin Truby told me uh, that she actually spoke with some of the laser engineers. They've got something really special in store in case the Kings do pull it off and clinch that playoff berth and snap that playoff drought, Alex. Oh, they will. We already know that they will. All right, thanks, Luke. 
and we are here to help you get answers and hear all of your points. We want to know what questions you have about the Kings. We will get them answered by our Kings experts, Matt George and Kevin John. You can just scan the QR code or text us at 916-321-3310. All right, guess what? More snow in the Sierra today. Sorry, Monica, this is a never-ending story. And it's really causing a lot of pain for the people that are trying to make their way through I-80 at places like Dutch Flat. It just seems like it's never-ending, Monica. Certainly, and we still have that winter storm warning in effect until 8 o'clock for tonight, so additional snow coming our way. As far as our radar, you can see the big push of moisture moving its way eastward. But in that, we saw numerous thunderstorms earlier today, and that's all associated with a low-pressure system, that counterclockwise circulation, still very evident right along the coast as it slides its way towards Southern California. One to four inches of additional snow still falling this afternoon and into tonight up to about 12 inches at the peaks with travel highly discouraged in the Sierra. As far as our 24-hour totals, coming in close to about 15 to 20 inches of snow. But the season total is closer to about 670 to 800 inches of snow. So some places actually reaching some record snowfall at this point. Our total rainfall is at 25.65 inches for downtown Sacramento. And that is more than the combined last two years of rainfall, helping us to dig and chip away at that drought that has been so persistent over the past three years. As far as total rain for today, Sacramento monitoring site is down. So currently we're still tracking about a quarter of an inch to almost an inch of rain in the valley and the foothills. And for our highs, it's been chilly. 50s for highs today in the valley, 40s for the foothills and close to 30 for this year. Tomorrow, not much change in our temperatures. We're still going to stay in the 50s, which is about 10 to almost 15 degrees below average, but we are going to dry out from some of that rain. Patchy fog to start us off tomorrow morning. That's what we'll encounter for the morning commute, but then that low starts to move its way eastward. Now, we will still see a slight chance of some snow flurries for tomorrow, but Friday, a great day. Saturday into Sunday, we'll track this low to the north of us, and that is going to provide us with at least a chance of snow flurries for Saturday and Sunday and a slight chance of a light sprinkle for the valley. Highs tomorrow in the Sierra in the 30s as we move our way down the hill. We're in the 40s and 50s, a little bit warmer than today, but still well below average. 50s and 60s along the coast heading into our Thursday forecast, and we're in the 50s and 60s throughout the valley. Again, patchy morning fog, especially for the morning commute, and then a mix of sun and clouds for the afternoon. Five-day forecast, a few flurries in there for Saturday and Sunday. Monday, more snow showers expected. For the foothills, rain expected on Sunday into Monday. Highs will be staying in the 40s and 50s. And along the coast, breezy next Monday. But overall, travel not too bad along the coast over the weekend. I know some folks are starting off their spring break this weekend. And it looks like it's going to be a rainy one into next week. (laughs) At least a chance of showers. But Alex, okay, 70. For that's the following weekend, you see that? Yeah, that's not bad. That's a highlight. I like it. There you I'll go. take it. <laughs> All right. A story we first brought you last summer onto the point. The city of Sacramento approved part of its American Rescue Plan funding to go towards revitalizing the Northgate Corridor, and it's a heavily traveled area in North Sacramento. So $5 million is being spent on infrastructure to improve traffic, lighting, and businesses. And now small businesses in the area, they can apply for one-time grants. The Gardenland Northgate Neighborhood Association tells us some businesses they spoke to are behind on their rent. And this money, I mean, it could really help. So a lot of them are family-owned, small businesses, maybe have one employee, and they're still recovering. 20 businesses will be picked to receive $2,500 one-time grants. 
The application deadline is this Friday. We have more information on abc10.com slash to the point. Today is National Vietnam War Veterans Day, and it's a day meant to pay tribute to Vietnam uh, veterans of the Vietnam War, including those who were prisoners of war or who were listed missing in action. And you can honor the more than 3 million Americans who served in the U.S. Armed Forces in the Vietnam War. This is the wall that heals, which is being set up in Roush Park in Citrus Heights. It will be there tomorrow through Sunday. It's a three-quarter scale replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Along with the wall will be a mobile education center, which will have digital photo displays of hometown heroes. And those are service members whose names are on that wall listed with, uh, within the Sacramento area. And Travis Air Force Base is also holding events in honor of those who served. One of the first groups of American POWs that left Vietnamese prison camps arrived at Travis Air Force Base more than 50 years ago, back in March of 1973. A famous Pulitzer Prize winning photograph was also taken there called Burst of Joy. We're back right after this. All right, our main point tonight discussed reparations for black Californians. Economists with the state's task force estimate reparations could cost more than $800 billion, which is two and a half times more than the state's annual budget. We heard from people for and against the idea of reparations, and we wanted to know what you think. So here are some of the comments that rolled in tonight. Reparation, giving back property, which was illegally taken from families I support, giving financial compensation, and burdening California taxpayers I don't support. And you wonder why people are leaving the state. We also got another comment that said, we are immigrants, and we work hard to earn our money, then pay tax. Tax money is to pay for services to people. And I want to get through a few more comments here. California cannot afford to pay $800 billion in reparations. Where will you get the money? Stop this nonsense. Another viewer also writing in, really, Native Americans had their country stolen from them, and we were literally hunted in the 19th century. And our last uh, comment here, this reparations program has been more than the most insane programs I've seen. You're going to give people money for what? So, again, we really do love hearing what your thoughts are on this. Keep writing into us. We'll have your comments coming up tomorrow. Have a great night. We'll see you later. Hey, it's Alex. Just wanted to say thank you so much for watching. I really love hearing from everyone, and I hope that you'll stay in touch. Reach out to me on Facebook at Alex Bell TV, or you can email me at to the point at abc10.com, or you can even send me a text message at 916-321-3310. This is The Quest, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. It was called Field Order 15. When President Abraham Lincoln signed it, former slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule. I'm Joel Wolfork with Look West. Field Order 15 was rescinded by President Andrew Johnson after Lincoln was assassinated. Over the many, many, many decades since, dozens of efforts have been made to come up with a reparations plan, but none have been successful. Enter AB 3121. Written by former Democratic Assembly member and now California Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber. In sum, the age of enslavement both in California and across the nation birthed a legacy of racial harm and inequity that continues to impact the conditions of black life in California. People who suffer injuries and losses through the malicious and culpability negligent conduct of others have a right to redress. AB 2131 would require an in-depth examination of the impacts of slavery and its afterlives in California, 
and provide the framework to develop uh, guidelines on how to begin to address the disparities born of a shameful history. That's Dr. Weber summarizing the argument for reparations to the Assembly Judiciary Committee back in May 2020, just one week after the murder of George Floyd and Americans were thrust into a time of painful conversations. She told ABC News that same week that the 40 acres in a mule plan proves that the country has known since the start that reparations should be awarded. The 40 acres and a mule, someone says, if you basically added it up and, and multiplied and figured out over the years, would be a huge settlement for, uh, for African Americans, for anyone. Uh, and we didn't get it, but it was interesting that they recognized the fact that simply freeing from slavery did not necessarily give them an equal footing or, an oppor- or even an opportunity to get on an equal footing because they didn't own land and they didn't even, if they had land, they didn't have a way of working that land. Her legislation, AB 3121, created the Reparations Task Force. The nine members of that task force have spent the last two years discussing, debating, and listening to hundreds of hours of public input to create its reparations proposal. But will those recommendations result in reparations? Dr. Weber has said it's been done before. In the past, we have rightly addressed grievous wrongs through reparations. Native Americans for the theft of their land. Japanese Americans for unjust internment. The Marshall Plan ensured European Jews receive reparations for the Holocaust. We seem to recognize that justice requires that those who have been treated unjustly need the means to make themselves whole again, to make up for the losses they experienced, to catch them back up with the rest of society. Fast forward to June 2023. The Reparations Task Force is delivering its proposals to the state legislature this month. I sat down with task force member and assembly member Reggie Jones-Sawyer to learn about the task force and its report. How are you doing today? I'm just doing fine. Thank you. Good, good. We appreciate you taking time out of this uh, busy day in the assembly. Um, so we've all heard about 40 acres and a mule and not necessarily knowing what that looks like. Um, how does it feel as an African-American leader and African-American individual to be talking about reparations? Um, thank you for this opportunity. Um, as someone whose uh, family was involved in the Civil Rights Movement, my uncle was one of the Little Rock Nine, one of the nine kids that integrated Central High School in 1957. And I was born in 1957. And uh, ever since I was young, I was told about giving back to the community, being involved, and all the stories of what my uncle went through um, so that he could go to high school. Now think about that. He was trying to get into an all-white high school in 1957, and there were racist mobs that refused to get let him in. Eisenhower had to send the 101st Airborne to escort him to school every day. He was kicked. He was beaten. He was spit on. Um, everything you could think of was done to him. He thought the N-word was his middle name. Um, it was probably one of the worst experiences a um, high school student could ha- handle, and he was 15. And if you think about it, those kids were like 15 and 16 years old going through all of that and going through all those racist mobs. Um, and when I went to USC uh, my first year, I was having a, a really, really good time. When I say a really good time, I'm talking about I was on academic probation good time. I was partying and having a good time and getting ready to flunk out of school. And most African-American families, you would have to sit at the foot of the elder in your family, which was my grandmother. And she would have a ladle in her hand when she was cooking at the stove all the time. So if it was in her left hand, she wanted to talk. If it was in her right hand, it means the beatings would start. It means to shut up, listen. 
she had in her left hand, and she was telling me about how I needed to go to USC, how unfortunate I was that I really needed to, uh, you know, um, study. And I knew she had not graduated from high school, and I got all, like, little teenagers do. Told her she didn't know what she was talking about. I'm going to USC. I'm in the fraternity. We're national champion football. I'm all that. The ladle switched from her left hand to her right hand, which meant I needed to be quiet. And she said, when you were a baby, um, the Klan called the house and told you told me to get your son out of school or your grandson will never make it to school. And she looked me in the eye and said, the grandson was you. You have absolutely no right to give up this education. This family went through everything so that you could go to any school you want. And you're over at this highfalutin school, and you're just wasting it. Um, after that, I was on the dean's list, and I've never looked back since then. And so I just think in some ways I'm supposed to be on the reparations task force because I know I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of people who sacrificed a lot of things so that not only I could go to USC and on to Harvard, but I'm now in a doctoral program at USC. And I do that even at my advanced age because um, I feel that every degree I get, every time I advance academically, it shows those racist white people back in Arkansas that they can't stop us, that you can't stop black people from advancing. No matter what you do, what you say, we're going to keep coming back. We're that resilient. And this is what reparations is really about. It's about making sure that we don't repeat the atrocities that we've done before and to have them continue. Um, a lot of people don't realize that California was complicit in a lot of the, the racist things that were done in the South and that now um, would be the best time for us to reverse it. But for me personally, um, as the, um, the grandson of individuals who participated um, in the civil rights movement, um, I think I'm supposed to be here to make sure that it gets done so that when my grandchildren and great-grandchildren look back on this day, what we do with reparations, their life will be so much better, and it'll be because of what I've done. So it's safe to say that you have, uh, you feel a moral obligation to help get reparations done? Oh, yeah. More than moral. Um, uh, I mentioned my grandmother. I know uh, if I don't do everything I can to make sure that reparations is done, that we reverse this river of racism that has been flowing through um, California African-Americans, that and I hope I do go to heaven, but if I do go to heaven, my grandma's going to be at the pearly gates, and I want to make sure she doesn't have that ladle in her right hand <laughs> that she has in the left hand, and she welcomes me in. Um, so I, I um, not only do I feel more obligation, I feel an obligation to make sure we get this right. Um, so you've been a part of this task force for uh, around two years now. What do, you, what do you think about the process that the task force has followed to develop these recommendations? So if, you, if you've been watching this, um, there have been a lot of different efforts that have been undertaken um, to get this done in different cities, um, different states. It's even been a national effort. Um, many of them have not gotten very far. And what I think it's because of the brilliance of Dr. Shirley Weber, that uh, I guess because she was an academic, she made sure that we proved the case of why we needed reparations. 
so that we looked at every aspect of human endeavor, whether it's education, whether it's in employment, whether it's in housing, whether it's in the criminal justice system, just whether it's in banking, owning businesses. Think about everything we do in society. What has kept African Americans being able to move um, through um, and be successful in California society, and how do we reverse that? And so that first document is 400 pages, uh, which I, you know, obviously tell everyone they should read it. Um, but once you read it, um, you cannot deny, uh, unless you're just a hard-hearted person, you cannot deny that there have been some major atrocities done to African Americans here in California. And we've proven that in that first document. And Dr. Weber was very astute in understanding that we're going to have to prove the case. This is almost like a court case, that we have to prove a civil liability case. This isn't about race. This is about atrocities that have been done to individuals. And then the second part of that is we're trying to gauge, and this is the recommendations that are going to come out in, on June 30th, try to gauge what the damages could be. Just like in a court case, um, you know, you see people getting awarded a lot of money, but the judge at the end doesn't always give you the exact amount that you want. Um, so that part will be happening when it comes to legislature, when we decide how do we actually reverse not only that with legislation and budget recommendations, but we hopefully will permanently um, stop um, all of the policies, procedures, and just what 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 has been done with implicit bias that's in California society, how do we stop that from continuing on? And that's the, that will be the task of State Senator Bradford and myself to actually put that into legislative language. Of course, we've had efforts to lead reparations, um, you know, for over a century now, but it seems like California has actually taken the steps and, like you said, laying out a detailed framework, really um, laying out the case for for the reason that these reparations are needed. Now, do you feel um, like these reparations, these uh, recommendations will actually turn into reparations this time? I have no idea. So if you know anything about legislation, it's compromise, it's on debate. Um, there will be an extensive amount of um, legal interpretations on what we can and can't do. Um, obviously, there are budgetary concerns, but most important, we're going to have to put in legislative language. And legislative language doesn't always comport with what you originally write, what you want. And so that is the challenge that Mr. Bradford and I will have, um, to be able to actually put this into, into reality. Um, the other thing I, I try to make people remember, yes, we can do the legislation, but the most important part will be implementation. And so we will lay out the framework for how it will happen, but the implementation part will probably be the most important thing. Um, and I'll just give you just one example. Um, when we talk about um, an apology letter uh, for all the wrongs that have been done, if that letter, which won't cost anything financially from the state of California, that letter doesn't show that California is actually um, apologetic for what has happened, if not, there's no sincerity, if there's, no, if there's not a heartfelt um, commitment to stopping it, or even just a heartfelt commitment that California admits that they did wrong, um, then that will, it will be shallow. 
and, and and if we're going to heal everybody um, from a, all the problems that we have been happening here in this, not only in this in the state but in this country, um, part of that healing um, will have to be at how sincere we are in making sure that this never happens again. Yes, it's really important to acknowledge it, but in that acknowledgement, I'm hoping that um, we can we can set the standard for why it will never happen again. We think about reparations often as mm-hmm. going to um, the descendants of people who suffered from slavery, but are there things that have happened since 1852, um, you know, or are currently going on today that we feel like reparations will be able to help solve and make sure that this never happens again? So that's a, that's a good question that I think even the task force is struggling with. Um, who should get reparations and how it should be dispersed um, and who qualifies um, for it. Um, I'm one of the, I mean, that was a tight vote as whether or not it's descendant of slaves um, and whether or not that individuals can prove it. Um, for me, um, I don't want to create another group of second-class citizens among African-Americans. And so if you are in the foster care system, you have parents that may have been um, prison involved on drugs in gangs if uh, if if you just don't know how to trace your ancestry if you're poor if you're on drugs if you're a homeless person out in the street guess what they need reparations more than anyone else but unlike me um, someone who's educated um, that has the financial work resources to be able to investigate my roots, to be able to hire someone to go into my uh, my lineage, my genealogy, and spend the money to do that, um, maybe I shouldn't be the first one in line. I know there, there, there are people who say that there's something wrong with that, but I want to make sure that the individuals I just mentioned don't get left out because they don't have the resources to be able to do that. And in fact, they need reparations more than I do. And, 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 and if we do not, and this is where I learned from about giving back uh, from my grandparents and my uncle and, and the need for me to make sure I take care of those who have the least, um, we're, we're going to have to really look at making sure that all African Americans rise because if we leave people behind, then we're setting up a, another group of African Americans that will live in poverty, live in the prison industrial system, and never be able to live the American dream. But most important, never be able to live the California dream. If you really think about it, it's the best dream you, you can have. We're the fourth largest economy in the world. They should be able to uh, to enjoy that. Okay, so it sounds like your, um, your vision from the committee for the, the vision of reparations is to really um, transform an entire community where a lot of different um, ideas were brought forward on that, um, asking whether it should be solely focused on financial compensation or should other measures such as educational opportunities, healthcare access, housing access, should those all be considered as um, kind of like a group-wide uh, reparation tool for reparations? So one of the things we're, we're going to have to make clear um, to everyone moving forward that uh, reparations is more than a check. Uh, in fact, um, I firmly believe what will make 
our rates rise will be more than cash payments. Um, it will be extremely important um, that we get our educational system up to a point where not only African Americans can be self-sufficient and are educated enough to, to, to create our own destiny, um, that we also have financial literacy to where we can have our own banks, we can start our own businesses, our own entrepreneurs. We, we learn how to manage our money as well, if not better than other communities, um, so that after a while, um, we may not need the help or assistance of government and that we're self-sufficient enough to where we are deciding our own destiny with our own money, resources, and, and, and abilities um, because we are a resilient race, and we've proven that under adverse conditions. Think about if we took people's foot off of our necks and allowed us to flourish with all of the tools available in California, um, how prosperous we could be. We have paid out uh, in California and America, we have paid out reparations to certain groups like um, Japanese Americans who were mm -hmm. interned, um, you know, during World War II. Um, why do you think we have not already paid out reparations to African Americans? Because we haven't made the case. That's why I said Dr. Weber's um, brilliance in creating the task force first to decide what um, what were the atrocities that were foisted on African Americans first, proving that. Um, it's very clear when you talk to people about the internment camps here in America um, on, on Japanese Americans. It's very clear about the property that was taken away from them. It's very clear during World War II that we we separated families from one another and then incarcerated them in, in camps here in, in California. You can, we, it, it's, it's not like you're going back 100 or 200 years to try to find that documentation. It is here now. So that, that became very, that was easier to get to that. Um, but I think what's really going to be important for us as, a, as the benchmark for reparations for African Americans, um, we will also prove this is how you show as a benchmark on how you can do reparations for women, LGBTQ community, Latino community, and, and Native American. Um, all of them have experienced some type of atrocity that have kept them back. Uh, Native Americans almost to the point of genocide. Uh, and so um, they can now use what we're doing here in California as a blueprint, uh, not only on the national level on how you do reparations, but in state by state, and city by city, locally. Um, that's why it's so important for us to get this right here in California, because this will be the blueprint that everyone else will be able to to, to attain that. Um, again, um, Japanese Americans, it was it was very clear um, why they needed to do it, and we're able to move forward with it. Um, once we are able to prove ours, I think others will be able to come on board and do do kind of the same. Um, that answers my uh, question for if mm -hmm. other states should look west as an um, example of how to do this right. Um, so what are the next steps for this? So as we move forward, um, the, the recommendations from the task force will be delivered to the Assembly on June 30th, or actually June 29th, uh, 2020. 
excuse me, 2023. Um, we're looking to have it done here in the Capitol in Sacramento. Um, once it's given to Mr. Bradford and I, um, I also have a select committee on reparations that will then look at how do we put this in the legislative and budgetary language. I implore people to call our office, write our office, um, give us suggestions on how we can move forward. Um, elected officials are only as smart as the constituents who, who get involved in what we do. Um, and the best ideas do not come from us. It comes from our constituents. And so um, uh, when you look at, and I'll give you a quick example, when you look at what we're doing with reducing the school-to-prison pipeline and the number of people that were incarcerated in our prisons went from 160 down to 90,000, would have left a lot of empty prisons. We could actually close 10 prisons. We're going to close two with a savings of about $230 million a year annually. Savings. Wouldn't it be great to plow that money back into African-American communities to help with domestic violence, drug abuse, um, PTSD, all of that that's going on in, in our community, childhood traumas, all of that is going on in the black community right now. If we could plow that money in, and this is, for, for in a lot of ways, this is free money. This is not adding taxes. This is not adding additional revenue that we have to, to come up with. This is savings from doing something good by closing two prisons with an opportunity to close ten. Or could we turn that land maybe into business opportunities for African Americans? Could we create our own black universities at some of these prisons? and tear them down and build, because um, we have no black universities here like they have historically black colleges back east. Could we start that on our own system here? I mean, there's a, and I got those ideas from people outside our system. And, 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 and so I want to keep it open so that we get some of the best and the brightest ideas um, to move forward. And so I, as, it, as we, Mr. Bradford and I, get the, uh, the documents and the recommendations, we will have some hearings, and I hope that people will come with some some ideas on what we can do moving forward um, to make this better for, for African Americans here in California. I just want to say thank you, Assemblymember John Sawyer, um, not only for your time today on this busy day in the legislative session, but also I appreciate you for being a, your leadership on this issue. Um, so thank you, sir. You're welcome, and thank you for asking. Thanks again to Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer, and thank you for listening to Look West. I'm Joel Wolfork. You can catch a new episode of Look West on the third Thursday of every month. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. When you think of Californian politics, remember to look west. Okay. Uh, welcome. We wish all here an early happy Black History Month. To everybody joining us from the Americas, Europe, the Middle East, the African continent, Asia, and the Pacific, my name is Antar Keith. I was born in the Bronx, New York, USA, and I serve as chair of the Democrats Abroad Reparations Task Force from right here in Leipzig, Germany, a country at the forefront of modern reparations history. I invite you to share in the chat where you are tuning from, tuning in from where you vote, and in one word, what reparations means to you. Reparations, or reparative justice, has existed as the 400-year-old cornerstone of Black American political thought 
beginning long before black Union soldiers fought to free themselves during the U.S. Civil War. Like an undying flame, the demand for justice has never once been extinguished despite the earlier kidnapping of warrior soldiers from West Africa, has never once been buried by the pain of chattel slavery, the subjection to black holes, force breeding mills, and ghastly experimentation. Never once has it been mitigated through the era of political terror following Reconstruction, white mob lynching, the lost cause, whitewashing of American history, and anti-black voter intimidation and terror, first from the then Democratic Party and today from the Republican Party, not even through American apartheid. Not once has our demand ever been silenced through urban renewal, eminent domain, and the war on poverty, not even during the war on drugs, and certainly not during the war on terror today. Our demand stubbornly refuses to decay, even though our bodies lay mortally wounded in the street, unarmed while racists with badges, smoking weapons in hand, fail to understand that only black people ever die this way. Our demand for reparations has remained resolute, unerringly so, doggedly so, audaciously even. It remains indivisible, refusing to be absorbed by any political party's identity politics at any cost. At its core, reparations represent a solid torch of hope, of aspiration, one of pain but also of unity and fulfilling a historic duty, or as Dr. Kirsten Mullen once called it, our sacred mission. It represents us choosing neither blue nor red at the ballot, but rather, for the first time in our history, us. It represents a promise of restoration, despite generations of accumulated compound damage wrought across the realms of education, employment, finance, law, healthcare, cultural memory, property ownership, civic engagement, and modern voting rights. Although we come from various political backgrounds, philosophy, and ideology, we are united by the hallmarks of a people who have and continue to ex experience an American genocide. It remains a terrible irony, then, that reparations for wars around the world remain a real, tangible reality, while for black folks, a people locked in their own never-ending war, reparations remain nebulous, intangible, long relegated to mere fantasy. But today is a new day. Next month, as America reflects on black history, we must also begin to consider our black future. With each passing week, we see new reparations commissions and task forces popping up across the country. With each day, we are seeing a greater awareness of reparative justice take form. In 2023, we must begin asking not if our government could ever end the legacy of black intergenerational disparities, but when. Better understanding, of, me, better understanding the national discussion about reparations and how they would be enacted and implemented is what brings us here today. Though some of us may come from various backgrounds ideologically, what unites us is far greater than anything that could divide us. Your presence here is testament to that. I appreciate all of you again for joining us here. We have GBC Steering Committee member Malika Kasumi here now to introduce a guest who can contextualize the rising call to action we are hearing from California to Texas, from New Jersey to New York. Malika, please. Thank you. Thank you, Antar. Greetings to all. I'm excited to introduce William Darity Jr., who's the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics. He's the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. 
His research focuses on inequality by race, class and ethnicity, school and the racial achievement gap, North and South theories of trade and development, skin shade and labor market outcomes, the economics of reparations, the Atlantic slave trade and the Industrial Revolution, the history of economics and the social psychological effects of exposure to unemployment. Along with A. Kirsten Mullen, he co-authored From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Dr. Darity, thank you for joining us. We're eager to hear from you today. Uh, thank you, Ms. Kasumi, for the generous introduction. And uh, I would like to also thank Antar Keith for inviting me to have the opportunity to speak to this community of Democrats who are all across the globe. Uh, I'd like to begin by defining reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. By acknowledgement, I mean a declaration on the part of the culpable party that it committed deep harms to others and the provision of an apology and a commitment to undertake redress on the part of the culpable party. Redress is the act of restitution or compensation to the victims for the damages that have been wrought. This often takes the form of monetary payments. And closure is an agreement on the part of the victimized community and the culpable party that the account is closed, that the debt has been paid. No more claims would be forthcoming from the victimized community unless new harms take place or old harms are renewed. Living Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States find their prospects limited and trapped by the multi-generational effects of what Antar Keith referred to as genocidal practices that have been, directed, been directed against them. If we look at the United Nations Convention for what constitutes genocide, they highlight five different practices which go far beyond extreme, the extreme of sheer extermination of a community. These five practices are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing intended measures to prevent the births within the group, and finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The manifestations of these genocidal practices in the United States are observable in terms of the impact of white supremacy. This would include the ongoing practice of discrimination in American labor markets where individuals, it has been demonstrated in field experiments that uh, black individuals without criminal records are less likely to be called back for jobs than white individuals who do have criminal records. Uh, black life expectancy in the United States is seven years less than white uh, life expectancy. In terms of other types of health outcomes, maternal mortality is a particularly telling signal of the degree of, of discrimination that's embedded in American society. Uh, 
black mothers with the highest levels of education, that is, black women who have master's degrees and who have PhDs or professional degrees, have the highest infant mortality rates of all women in the United States. Uh, police arrests are also demonstrative. Uh, blacks are, black men in particular, are more likely to be arrested on drug possession charges, uh, 2.8 to 5.5 times more likely than, than white men. And this is despite the fact that there is no substantive evidence of any difference in the rates of drug possession on the parts of blacks and whites. And in fact, some studies suggest that white rates of drug possession are actually higher than black rates. Black men are killed at three times the rate of white men by the police. So there's a huge array of harms and damages that are ongoing to the present moment, but they are an outcome of the history of white supremacy in this country. In the United States context, the trajectory of genocide leads to denial of full citizenship for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here. This is a denial that is particularly acute with respect to the material conditions for citizenship. Those material conditions are captured by the racial wealth gap. The black-white wealth gap is the best economic indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy. White supremacy is a product of national policy. It is not merely a matter of personal or individual aggressions or microaggressions. It's far more substantive. It's a consequence of a series of policies that have been introduced by the federal government, either through action or inaction, that have resulted in this huge disparity in wealth that we observe today. In the 19th century, land was the primary object of asset building policy on the part of the federal government. The government promised the formerly enslaved 40-acre land grants in, uh, initially along the eastern seacoast between uh, the, South, the Sea Islands of South Carolina and the uh, northern territories of Florida bordered by the St. John's River. This was actually uh, a, a promissory note on a full commitment to land allocation to the four million formerly enslaved. This particular initial allocation under Sherman's special field order number 15 amounted to 5.3 million acres of land under his special field orders number 15. The ultimate result of this process was only 40,000 acres of, uh, 40,000 of the freedmen were settled on 400,000 acres of land out of the 5.3 million initially specified. Uh, and, and that, uh, that land was taken away from them, uh, on the orders of President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor. Uh, in, in, uh, in the process of restoring that land to the former slaveholders. At the same time, the federal government was providing one and a half million white families with 160 acre land grants in the Western territories under the Homestead Act of 1862. The consequence is 45 million living white Americans are continued beneficiaries of the, uh, of the Homestead Act of 1862. In addition, 
Um, there was a host of massacres that took place from the uh, end of the Civil War into the beginning of World War II, which led to uh, property takings and seizures of property on the part of the white terrorists, making that property their own and aggravating the racial wealth gap. And there actually were a hundred of these massacres, even though people are probably most familiar with the one that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, and perhaps the one that took place in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. But in fact, there was uh, there was there was a hundred of these that took place. In the 20th century, uh, the federal government shifts away from land distribution as its mechanism for asset building to home ownership. But it applies the home ownership project in a highly discriminatory fashion, ranging from the application of redlining measures, which were essentially a public-private partnership between the Federal Housing Administration and local banks, as well as the application and execution of the home buying provisions of the GI Bill. Uh, finally, in the uh, the second half of the 20th century, particularly in the 1960s, the introduction of a, a full-scale highway system across the country resulted in the running of freeways through the hearts of black communities all across America, not only destroying the structure of black neighborhoods, but also destroying black business districts. An additional consequence of the massacres was the creation of a black refugee population that moved out of the communities that had been subjected to these atrocities and had to relocate elsewhere throughout the country. Uh, it is clear that these policies put the lie to the notion that the black-white wealth gap is due to black profligacy or dysfunctional behavior. Now, uh, the final thing that I would like to make mention of today is, is the particular vision of what a structure of a reparations plan ought to look like. And this is a vision of the structure of a reparations plan that has emerged from the work that Kirsten Mullen and I have done, as well as the influence of a host of other thinkers about how American black reparations should be conducted. There are four features. The first is the determination of who should be eligible to receive reparations. And we anchor the concept of eligibility on the fact that the federal government has a debt that it owes as a consequence of its failure to provide the 40-acre land grants to a very specific segment of the uh, black community in the United States. And that's the individuals who are descendants of persons who were freed at the end of the Civil War. So we argue that eligibility should be contingent on two criteria. The first is what we refer to as a lineage standard. And the lineage standard has it that an individual must demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. The uh, second, second condition is what we refer to as an identity standard, which is for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations, uh, an individual would have to demonstrate that they self-identified as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American. The second uh, component of an ad adequate reparations plan must be uh, the determination of the amount that should be distributed to the eligible recipients. And uh, in the work that we've done, we've argued that the racial wealth gap provides that critical indicator or index of what should be uh, due to the uh, the descendants of 
persons enslaved in the United States. We estimate that the amount that would be required is $14 trillion, and it would be equally distributed across the 40 million or so uh, eligible recipients of, of reparations. Uh, then the third component of this is, uh, is who would pay, and that is the federal government, because it is the culpable party, but it is also the capable party. Uh, one of the things that's a bit troubling that's been going on lately is this array of piecemeal reparations projects that have been proposed nationally uh, in many, many cities and across states. Uh, but there, there are two difficulties here. The first is that uh, states and localities cannot meet a bill that would be sufficient to eliminate the racial wealth gap. The total combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States is less than $5 trillion, and the bill for reparations is at least the $14 trillion that would be needed to eliminate the racial wealth gap. But the second issue is uh, the conditions of white supremacy that are implemented through national policy are primarily a consequence of federal policies. So not only is the federal government the capable party, but it is also, in a fundamental sense, the culpable party and bears responsibility for meeting the debt that has long been unpaid. The final component of the, uh, of the reparations plan that we have in mind is that there should be a mechanism of direct payments to the individual recipients, that that should be a priority. There may be other uses of a total reparations fund that goes beyond the amounts that are required to close the racial wealth gap, but the primary focus of the project must be direct payments to the eligible recipients, just as other reparations initiatives for victimized communities have made direct payments to the eligible recipients, uh, including the German government's payments to the victims of the Holocaust or the United States government's payments to Japanese Americans who were subjected to mass incarceration during the course of World War II. So uh, that's, that's, those are the fundamental four pillars of a reparations plan. Uh, and I'll be glad to talk about any dimensions of these issues as we move forward in the conversation today. I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Darity, for sharing your ideas and concepts with us. Uh, we're so grateful that you're here today to speak with us to share this important and critical information, sir. Uh, right now, what I want to do is I want to jump now to, um, you know, uh, the next kind of dimension in this kind of paradigm. Uh, I want to really start off just by asking uh, uh, our uh, guests, what do black voters demand in exchange for our political capital? I ask this because merely staving off a red wave has not and will not prevent the next George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, or Kenan Anderson. After recently speaking with my brother and reparationist in arms, Baba Kim, I learned how much power black voters have. In order to use it properly, we must understand the power we have politically speaking. The Democratic Party as a political entity from 1960 to right now has only managed to win the majority of the white vote a mere 6% of the time in the general election. 
Just like the late, great Malcolm X illustrated in his famous Bullet on a Ballot speech, white voters are, have been, and will be divided. From the 1960s until today, Dems have only wielded executive power a measly 6% of the time, uh, would have wielded it only a measly 6% of the time if they depended exclusively on the non-Latino white vote. Meditate on this. If the white vote and unsuppressed black vote were counted alone, then 75% of all presidential elections, that is from 1960 until today, would have resulted in Democratic victories. Without our participation, hypothetically, the same number immediately dropped to 12.5%. In a system where there is no viable Democratic pathway to victory, without black political participation, We have been the kingmakers. This is why the GOP tries so hard to stop the black vote in particular and why Dems fear losing us. Over 87.5% of the time Dems have won the White House, it has been due to the black vote, our vote, boosting the Democratic minority of total white votes, tipping an otherwise skewed balance of power in our favor. Quite simply, when black folks are allowed to vote, Dems win. When our vote is suppressed, the GOP wins. When black voters are divided, we lose either way. Yet the time of us giving away our vote, our power, without collective bargaining for our repair is over. We must come together this year, no matter our philosophy, and we must begin to build consensus for a black agenda that our elected leaders must be beholden to. Otherwise will continue to be subject to the typical tap dancing opportunists, empty rhetoricians, and politicals performing kente cloth clad acts of fake allyship. We must learn how to link the reparations movement to electoral politics and repair the nation through reparations. With this in mind, Malaika, can you please introduce our next guest? Let me unmute. Thank you so much for that passionate uh, introduction, Anta. I'm also very excited to introduce Miss um, Nina Turner, known as, I quote, hell-raising, a hell-raising humanitarian, and as well as a tireless advocate for progressive values and social justice. She made history in 2005 and 2008 as the first woman and African-American woman, respectively, to represent Ohio's 25th District as state senator. She promoted progressive policies through her work with the Ohio Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns, and during her time at Our Revolution. Turner is a former assistant professor of history at, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Cuyahoga Community College, and host of the Hello Somebody podcast. Turner is currently the host and executive producer of Unbossed, a show that airs daily on the Young Turks Network. Ms. Turner, thank you for joining us today, and we're very eager to hear from you as well. Well, thank you, Malika. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with all of my sisters and brothers and family and friends from all over the world. It is indeed a beautiful thing and always exciting to hear Dr. Darity talk about the reparations as he is him and Ms. Mullins have been working on this for decades and to bring this really to a level that we all can understand, the masses can understand through the book that they wrote is indeed a beautiful thing. Antar, I was amen in you every word that you were saying it really is time out 
for the black community and any of our so-called allies to continue to accept less than nothing. You know, I had a mentor. She is on the ancestral plane right now, but her name is Fannie M. Lewis. She served as the longest-serving councilwoman in the city of Cleveland's history thus far, and she has this mother wit about her like the women of her era did, very much like my grandmother. And she used to say, it doesn't matter whether you meant to kill me on accident or on purpose. Dead is dead. And so we have a situation in this country and also in this world where we do have forces and powers that reveal themselves in the physical who really do mean to kill the spirits, the hearts, the minds of black people, some on purpose, others by accident. But as Councilwoman Fannie M. Lewis once said, dead is dead. And so to destroy the very core soul and being of black people who are descendants of those who were enslaved. It is a generational proposition, as Dr. Darity has laid out, and it is one that this country has yet to address. I would dare say, I mean, we're going to tackle the United States of America first, but all the imperial powers, all the colonizers actually do owe all black folks a debt. And we can tackle that one at a whole nother time, but that is really what we are dealing with black folks in the diaspora, so we need to have a family conversation about that as well. But I'll put that in the parking lot. On the political, in the political plane, yes, it is true, Antar, everything that you said about how the Democratic Party itself has been able to win elections across this country, especially federally and especially for the presidency, has came because of black folks. A lot of folks vote, different people from racial, ethnic, identity, Groups vote for the Democratic Party. There is no doubt about it. But the loyalist base of the Democratic Party is black folks. And I would argue that in the 21st century, and it pretty much was the same in the 20th century, but in the 21st century, black folks went from being the mistress to the side piece. See, the mistress at least gets some trinkets from time to time. The side piece gets absolutely nothing. And that is where black folks have gotten absolutely nothing. So I want to say to my black sisters and brothers and family and friends, and those of you who are not black, you can listen in on this family conversation. When will we stop being complicit in our own demise? When will we stop allowing the Democratic Party to whisper absolutely sweet nothings in our ear, and when they get into these offices, they do absolutely nothing to edify and to lift the black community from a systemic perspective. See, I'm not talking about them black folks who get to go to the Christmas party. I ain't talking about those. I'm not talking about the Clyburns of the world. I'm not talking about those. The Hakeem Jeffries of the world who was picked to be the successor of the former Speaker of the House, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. I'm not talking about them types. I'm talking about the types that big mama and big papas cultivated in hoods all over this, this country, whether they're rural hoods, urban hoods, or suburban hoods. I'm talking about a systemic lift of black people that can sustain itself for generations. And as Dr. Darity laid out so clearly, the major thing that has to be done to be able to do that so that black folks don't have to worry about who's whispering sweet nothings is reparation. And for those who claim to be allies of the black community, you have got to be able to say very clearly with us, by our side, not trying to take over the space and take over the room, that reparations is the order of the day. It is long overdue. You know, we just celebrated 
the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I can't tell you, sisters and brothers and family and friends, how much it pained me to see so many elected officials in particular, because I want to rest on them. We're going to dress them up a little bit, who pontificated and tweeted and went and gave speeches about his life and his legacy when they really know nothing about the radical king. I invite you all to read the book that was edited by the one and only Dr. Cornell West titled The Radical King. See, they don't want to talk about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who condemned this nation for his racism. They don't want to talk about the radical king that condemned or indicted this country for its materialism, its militarism, and its anti-black bigotry. No, that's not the one that they want to talk about. They want to talk about the one that says that he lives, he wants to see a day where people are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But what they forget to understand is that Dr. King indicted the character of this nation along with people like Minister Malcolm X, along with people like Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, along with people like Fannie Lou Hamer and others. Let us not forget, sisters and brothers and family and friends, that Fannie Lou Hamer from Mississippi, a sharecropper, was able to galvanize her colleagues, both black and white, and indicted in the 60s this very Democratic Party that Antar just got done talking about. And they created their own party together based on what they had in common, that they were catching hell, not heaven, catching hell because they were poor, because they were black, and then our poor white sisters and brothers as well. So I'm using that as an example to say that it is time out for the black community to continue to give its votes to a party that does absolutely nothing other than to give us trinkets. A few black people in high places and high spaces does not mean that the black community has been liberated economically, socially, political, politically, physically, mentally, spiritually. That has not been done at all. And so the black community has to make a decision. It has a decision to make whether we're going to keep giving away our, our vote. Vote is power, so you got to be able to make a demand. Let me bring a few words from the one and only Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist, as we all know. He advocated and, and spoke up and fought against the ills of this nation, and at the same time loved this nation. I will say to you all, don't nobody love America more than black folks. Nobody. We love this country, although this country has betrayed us time and time and time again, and we ain't got to go all the way back. We can look at the Great Recession that just happened a few days ago on the spectrum of history where black folks left lost over half of their wealth through their homes. We ain't got to go way back. We can look at what just happened just on January the 7th to Tyree Nichols at the hands of a vicious system that does not see black lives as beautiful and worthy. I argue, I surmise to you, sisters and brothers and family and friends, that what we saw those black police officers do to that black man was sick. And it is a sickness in this country that can be pushed and revealed through people who even look like us, like me. That it is a systemic failure that policing in this country came about to not protect and serve the black community, but to lord over it and to treat us as if we are less than animals. And we saw that manifest, unfortunately, at the hands of five black men who are kicked out of the damn tribe. They out. 
They got to go. And I hope the full force and weight of the legal system bears down on them. But let us not forget, as quickly and as swiftly as justice has started to percolate around them, where is that swiftness and that quickness when black people die at the hands of white police officers? Where is the black, uh, Blue Lives Matter crew? Nowhere to be found, not justifying what those officers did, but we got a conundrum on our hands, America. We got a problem on our hands, and in some cases, we have got to admit that this legal system cannot be reformed. It must be torn down and reimagined. And for anybody that saw the tears of that mama and she talked about her baby and being able to feel his pain, there is no way that we cannot say that there is something cruel and unusual about this, this system, but it is not an anomaly. And so the shock that some people feel because you saw it at the hands of five black officers, I surmise to you this morning, this afternoon, tonight, whatever time zone you are in, that those five black officers are a product of a system that is racist, that is anti-black, and that is rooted in white supremacy. And we ask law enforcement officials to somehow upend the very nature that they have been culturated in that they've been socialized in, that we all have been socialized in, to see black bodies and black hearts and black minds as somehow unworthy. So I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. Well, yeah, I did mean to get off on that tangent. All of this stuff is linked. Because you cannot say that you love black people. The great novelist Jane Baldwin once said that you cannot say that you love the tree and you hate the root. And we must admit in these United States of America systemically, I'm not talking about individual racism and individual bigotry. I'm talking about systems have been created and reinforced that shows every single day that they don't give a damn about black bodies. And so what are my sons and my grandchildren and other people's sons and daughters that we cannot as a country grapple with this? You had elected officials just a few days ago. When I say a few days ago, I'm being very sarcastic, but a question was asked, does, does racism and bigotry still exist in this country? And you got the current vice president who said it did not. You got Senator Tim Kaine on the Republican side, or Tim Scott, excuse me, who said it did not. And I don't care who these people are. Again, black faces in high places does not change the conditions by which black people find themselves suffocated from. So on the political realm, black folks have got to decide we're just not going to take this no more from Democrats or Republicans. And let me not leave these Republicans, today's Republicans, off the hook. Listen, I'm not letting them off the hook. But the reason why I indict the Democratic Party more fiercely is because they get over 90% of the black vote every single time. When Democrats had control of the House, the Senate, and still have control of the presidency, they were told that the, that the George Floyd Policing Act was going to pass. It didn't. When the Democrats had control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, we were told that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act was going to pass to try to undo some of the damage in Shelby v. Holder at the hands of the United States Supreme Court. It didn't. Workers in this country were told, we're going to pass the PRO Act. We didn't. Rail workers were betrayed 
by the 118th Congress at the hands of the President, the Transportation Secretary, and the Congress, we must, we must, particularly the black community, but we need some allies and we need some co-conspirators, say that we ain't going to take it anymore in the spirit of a Fannie Lou Hamer who stood up to President Lyndon Baines Johnson, so much so the brother had to have a press conference to stop her truth from percolating. She indicted the Democratic Party, and we need that moment once again. Finally, because I can keep on going with this, from the words of Brother Frederick Douglass, he said this, and I want you all to understand me and understand me clearly. When I quote these words, I want you to listen to what? Listen and not just hear. Listen. He said this, those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both, but it must be a struggle. Power conceives nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. That is it. So to the black community in particular, when you make a demand, if people don't answer the demand, there must be a consequence. And the reason why the Democratic Party continues to get away with not answering our, to our needs is because there is never a consequence for them not meeting the demand. And the Republicans are just useless, especially on the federal level. And we're going to have to deal with them too. Lastly and finally, for real this time, the duopoly in this country is a problem, sisters and brothers and family and friends. And while we are focusing specifically on black people, let me put Another thing on this, that working class people from all backgrounds have been betrayed by the duopoly who answer to their, co their corporate owner donors. That's why we can't have nice things in the United States of America. That's why we don't have universal health care. That's why the pharmaceutical uh, companies can control the price of prescription drugs is because the owner donors are in full control of this oligarchic nature of this representative democracy in these United States of America beyond answering and redressing the ills and the criminality of chattel slavery and black codes and Jim Crow and Jane Crow. We have got to deal with this system that allows poor people to languish and not be able to live a good life because the type of people we elect to office only care about the owner donors and do not care about the big papas and the big mamas in this country. We must make a demand and make sure that there's a consequence. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Turner. Um, so what I would like to do now is I would like to open this up to our audience um, and provide a little bit of Q&A for both uh, Dr. Darity and Ms. Turner. Um, you know, uh, if you would like to ask a question, first things first, type into the chat box, star, star, hand up. 
and you will be put into a queue. There are people here who are willing to um, make sure that you have, a, you know, the proper time to ask a question. I, uh, you know, stress this because there might be a lot of, well, I feel like there will be a lot of people asking questions. Um, please try to limit your questions or comments to about one minute maximum, you know, and, you know, try to generate actually questions along with your comments. If you do have a comment, great, but if you have a question, uh, even better, because we are really trying to begin what should be a very engrossing conversation that will not just end at the end of this event, but will continue to go on and on and on. This is the conversation of our time, the conversation of preparative justice in America. Okay. Okay. So. Okay. Hopefully, I'm not echoing anymore. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to be monitoring the queue, and when you hear your name, you'll be asked to unmute, I believe, or um, and then um, you'll be allowed to ask your question. So first up, I see we have Wanda. Wanda, I, I think um, yes, my, my, my question is, how do we take this very urgent, compelling agenda for what I call slavery justice, real reparations, reparative justice to a higher court? And the way the reason why I say that is because we are all aware that America has not responded. And I think we need to have a dual approach to getting to reparations. Um, in, in the, in the, on the federal level, there has been no real activity that will result in the actualizations of reparations checks. The payment, direct payment to descendants of formerly enslaved black people, which I am, a 72-year-old black woman who comes from a history of slavery in America, enslavement of my ancestors, and the accountability. I don't see it happening on a federal level without an international court mandate from the UN to hold America accountable for the human rights violations and the atrocities and horrors of our enslavement. Everything to this moment relates to that in our journey. Even what we saw played out in Memphis goes back to how police were established to patrol, to harass, to capture, to hold in prison uh, enslaved black people. That's how, that's how the police force was established. So that mentality is a reflection of our oppression. But I won't talk, I'm talking now about the UN. Uh, how can we get an agenda that takes us from where we are now to a higher international court to try America, to put America on trial, to be held accountable? That's my question. Uh, and I want to applaud everyone today, especially our highly esteemed you know, dynamic chairwoman and everyone on this committee for the work that we're doing. But I think we need to have a 
international agenda to hold America accountable beyond the corridors of Washington, D.C. How do we do that? Well, I would say, I mean, certainly we have a example in Minister Malcolm X. Some of you may recall uh-huh. whether you, you know, lived it or you studied it a bit. That Minister Malcolm X did just what you were saying, that he took it to a higher, to a world court, so to speak, and indicted this nation for human rights violations against African Americans. I mean, there is no reason why uh, we could not do that today. One of the things that he said is when you expand the civil rights struggle to the level of human rights, uh, he said this on April the 3rd, 1964, you can then take the case of the black man in this country before the nations, plural, uh, to the UN as a vehicle. So there is no reason why that cannot be resurrected again with a 21st century spin. At the same time, I don't think these things are either or. We still must do battle right here on this soil before the federal government to force them to do uh, what should have been done a long time ago. A couple of comments. Uh, First, In the late 1950s, Queen Mother Audley Moore brought a case to the United Nations uh, for the harms of genocide to uh, black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. Uh, I don't believe at that point anything came of it, but very recently, prior to the pandemic, the United Nations Working Group uh, on Peoples of African Descent said explicitly that reparations is due to black Americans. The difficulty is that the United Nations and other international courts of justice or their equivalent have no capacity to enforce anything uh, on any country throughout the world. Uh, I think that in terms of international unity, there's more success to be won by having uh, communities of black people across the diaspora who have claims on specific colonial powers or specifically on the United States uh, to support one another. So, for example, when the, uh, the people of the Congo are making a claim on the Belgian government, by all means, I think uh, black Americans should endorse that. Similarly, I think all the nations of the African continent should take a step like refusing the entry or continued presence of U.S.-owned corporations in their countries until the United States government provides reparations to black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, But I don't think that the International Court of Justice or the United Nations has the capacity to make this happen. We have to have a political movement internal to the United States to compel the United States Congress to do the right thing. So we have to change who our elected officials are. We have to have elected officials who would be willing, if necessary, to stack the Supreme Court in the event that a reparations plan is adopted. Is this possible? It is possible, uh, but it's going to be very difficult. The reason why I say it's possible is because there's been a sea change in American attitudes towards reparations. Uh, We wouldn't be having this type of a conversation in this group if we were only 
five or six years in the past. At the beginning of the 21st century, in the year 2000, a study that was done by Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff indicated that only 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. By the year 2018, that figure had risen to 15%, still quite low, but not as low as 4%. And then as of last year, and in a study that was replicated just a few days ago by the University of Massachusetts, the figure for white support appears to be closer to 30%. Can we sustain that momentum? Can we build a movement? Well, that's the challenge before us. Thank you so much for that question and those um, really insightful answers. Next up, we have Malika. Malika, are you able to unmute? Yes, I, I have. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank both of you, um, of Dr. Darity, of, of giving a new face to genocide, or seeing the other side of it's important, and also to you, Ms. Turner, of stripping away racism as person as a personal choice, as a political result. That's really important. My question is this, though. Where do we go with our vote? That's that, that's the problem. There's we have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. We have a vote. Where are we taking this vote? Um, I know that there are a number of black people who are Democrats or people, all of all colors, Democrats not by choice but by lack of choice. And if you go into the system, how can we be in the system and change the system? What is it that we can do? What can I do, me, Malika, one person, besides saying from we? That's my question to both of you. Certainly, Malika, you bring up a very good point of where do we go, and that's exactly what the power structure wants us to say all the time. That is how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both comport themselves, but especially the Democratic Party when it comes to black people. I mean, let me tell you something, being in some of these rooms with that kind of attitude, where are they going to go? What else are they going to do? They want us to feel that way. And so while what you just stated is a reality that we have to grapple with, we don't have to continue to live with that. We can run candidates and support those candidates who will do our bidding, period. So we don't have to be stuck in that. Another real thing that could happen, and it's happening all over this country in different municipalities, is ranked choice voting is another option that takes some of the air out of the two major parties. So in terms of an activism or, or something that people may want to work on, it's going to take a longer time to get that to be the case on the federal level. However, ranked choice voting is an opportunity to blunt that kind of full frontal force from the two parties. And it is one of the reasons why the two major parties do not like a ranked choice voting at all to, to level the playing field. And then lastly, in dealing with the reality that we have, I, I need us to really think and to focus on the fact that there is power. We do have power um, that we can can flex our muscles. I mean, Asa Philip Randolph comes to mind, one of the greatest uh, unionists of the 20th century where he made FDR, you know, desegregate the, 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 the armed forces, uh, black uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of black folks who were put to work because he said to the president, I'm coming to march on you. That was in the 40s. FDR couldn't have that because on the world scene, World War II was going on, and he was out there saying, you know, we, we, we are the example. We can't be the example of black folks marching on Washington. 
So we have to, this, this goes beyond marching. Marching is a tool. It's one of the tools in our toolbox. It's not the only tool in our toolbox. But we need to draw upon some of the actions and acts of our ancestors or our predecessors. Many of those people are still walking the face of this earth. So let me just say not everybody's in the ancestral plane. And combine that with some of the new tools that we have and not be afraid to say that there will be a consequence. We are going to have to endure some pain, but we've been enduring pain for generations. We cannot allow the Democratic Party to get away with saying, well, we are the lesser of two evils, and you got to pick one of us. No, we do not have to pick one of them. And then lastly, attitudes about third parties is really changing, too. Uh, more and more Americans are saying, uh, especially younger people, but certainly in my travels all across the country, I've talked to some seasoned folks, too, who are tired of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and want to see a third party emerge because they care about the life that they have left, but more importantly, they care about their children and their children's children and what kind of nation are they going to inherit. And my last point in all of those points that we can never, we cannot allow power structures to make us feel so helpless that then we play the game by their rules. If that had been the reality of black Americans in this country, Africans, and then their African-American descendants, then the prospect of the abolition of slavery would have never happened. You see, that is the realest example that I can give you. Yes, was it hard? Absolutely, the people make sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, mental sacrifices, Physical sacrifices, absolutely. But if just think, if they had played by the rules that were set before them, the notion of the 13th Amendment with its flaw would not have come to pass. So we have to make a collective decision about how hard we are willing to fight and what sacrifices we are willing to make to get there. And all of the examples that I'm giving you is not an either or, it's an and. And I want you to see it that way because it's not just one thing that's going to get us there. It's multiple things that are going to get us there. And even though going back to the point about the UN, even though I don't necessarily disagree with Dr. Darity's point about the UN not having the, the power to force the United States to do anything, as a matter of political tactics, this is my tactician, you know, the politician in me, as a matter of tactic, to take something before the UN would be a beautiful thing. And at the same time, taking every other step that I have mentioned and also Dr. Darity has mentioned as well. So it's not one thing, it's all of these things. No, I, I would only uh, in, endorse uh endorsed uh, Nina Turner's point about the importance of third parties evolving that actually have some heft. Uh, and, you know, there's there's actually an, a, an effort underway that's being led by uh, Eric Smalls to establish what he's calling a Freedmen's Party. Uh, and there are other types of efforts to establish uh, third parties. The presence of third parties does not prevent coalition from being established with uh, with the existing dominant parties, uh, but it may also put pressure on them to alter their direction of change. So I think that's important. The unfortunate thing is we're in a very, very dangerous time. We're always in a dangerous time, but this one is 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 acutely dangerous because the Republican Party is a vehicle for the introduction of full-scale fascism in the United States. 
And so that's that's why you know the the Democratic Party has the advantage in that situation of getting the black vote because the 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 shift of the black vote to the Republican Party is so extraordinarily dangerous at this moment. Uh, but it it leads to the situation that that Nina Turner's talking about, where the Democratic Party can depend on the black vote without doing anything for black people. And it didn't do anything for black people when Barack Obama was president. So let's let's be clear about that. Uh, and so um, so yeah, I I think that the development of viable third parties is really really a critical component of this process. Great, thank you so much. Next up, we have Adrian. Adrian, are you um, there and able to? Yeah, no, I, w- I was on mute. I think someone muted me. Sorry. Oh, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Darity and Sister Nina Turner, for being with us today. Um, and all of the insights that you've made are just so important. And I think for our members, membership as Democrats who live abroad, it's really important um, to hear these points of view because we have a lot of members who have not lived in the United States before or, um, you know, they just have not had the political uh, education that I feel is required that I grew up with, you know, that you all grew up with. Um, And I think this is a really important question about how we address this in America. Um, So I'm making more of a comment than a question, really. I think um, yesterday we celebrated the Holocaust Memorial Day, and there's, you know, increasing evidence that people across the world don't believe that it happened. Uh, they don't understand what happened. They don't know the historical value of it. And we have in the United States at the moment a governor in the state of Florida, like Ron DeSantis, who is banning uh, AP history courses about African American studies. So for me, this is a, I mean, it's a two-pronged thing. I think the, the educational part is very, very important, and this will increase our um, the viability of third parties in the United States. But um, I think also within the Democratic Party, it is about accountability. And so for me, as a member of Democrats Abroad, I'm holding our leadership accountable for their knowledge or lack of knowledge um, about these issues and also um, about what it really means to be an ally at this time. And I would like to hear, you know, your perspective about how we can improve that with it, because we do have to, the fight is within the Democratic Party as well, I think. Um, for now, that's where it sits. So I would like to hear if you have any um, thoughts about, you know, how do we hold our own accountable? I mean, definitely we got to have an inside and outside game, game plan. I mean, the only way to hold people accountable is to, one, make the demand, and then there has to be a consequence for the demand. So if we were keeping a report card right now, what are the things that would be on that report card? You know, as an educator, Dr. Darity and I both are that, and, you know, I would have my students in my class, and I let them all know, first day of school, everybody got an A. Everybody in this class got an A today. It's your job to keep it. So when it comes politically, we do not analyze uh, these elected officials through those that type of lens. I voted for you. This is your score right now. It's your job to keep it. How do you keep it? 
well, these are the things that you have to do to keep it. We need the George Floyd Act passed. I mean, these are minimal things uh, that black folks are asking for. This ain't even pie in the sky stuff that black people are asking for, and they couldn't even do that. So when the midterm came, I analyzed my students. Some students still kept A, some had B, some had C, some had D, some were borderline S. And I said to them, now you got X number of weeks to make this right so that you can get a good score in this class in the final analysis. That is the same thing with these people that we elect to office. So we we can run people too. I mean, let me tell you, as a national co-chair for Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2020, and certainly I was with him in 2016, I want you to think about how a, a senator from Vermont, one of the smallest states in this country, was able to go up against juggernauts and raise grassroots dollars to do it. I use that as an example because we can, we can raise up the consciousness of people in this country and all around the world to the plight of black people here, pull our resources, our time, our talent, and our treasure to get people to move. And um, the fascism point that Dr. Darity brought up, I totally agree. Black people are always saving this nation. But you know what my question is? When, are, when is the Democratic Party going to act like neo-fascism is a threat? Why is that burden solely on black people to constantly save this country from neo-fascism and accept the lesser of the two evils? When are Democrats going to comport themselves as if neo-fascism is a clear and present danger in such a way that they are pushing and passing policies that change material conditions? See, they're not acting like it's a clear and present danger, but the burden is always on black folks to act like it's a clear and present danger, which it is. I am not minimizing that. I think neoliberalism kills you slowly. We are witnesses. And neo-fascism kills you quick. So they got to have an obligation to do that. But I want no one to leave this, this, this gathering today thinking that we are helpless. We are not helpless, and we are not hopeless. But it will require a great deal of planning. As my dear friend Michael Rinder says, a.k.a. Killer Mike, we got to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. And that takes a lot of work. When we think about notions of justice, it's all up here, and we think of it in some high-minded way as we reflect on black history and how far we've come. But yet we forget to go deeper to realize the blood, sweat, and tears that was given to even get us this far, that the whole notion of justice is not pretty. It's, it's hard work. People lose lives and livelihoods, even if they don't physically die, in the fight, in the pursuit for justice and liberation. And so that is the mindset by which, in my opinion, we have to approach this thing. And that it is a generational journey that the first you pass in batons. And so now the baton is in our hand to advance that justice, and then we're going to pass it on to the next. And then they got to advance justice, and they're going to pass it, and it will never, ever end. But are we going to make the type of progress that then sets a solid foundation? And we got to do that through the realm of politics, electoral politics, but also activist inside, outside game to pressure these people to do what it is we want them to do, including running our own people against these folks and not falling so in love, sisters and brothers and family friends, with these elected officials that they can't be competed. For their job, not for their individual personalities, but for the job that they were elected to do. Mm. 
then I suppose next up we have Friday. Hey, good morning. Um, I always enjoy the conversation that you all host, so um, I'm just grateful to be here. But my questions, and I put them um, in the chat, it's a two-part question for Darity. Um, the first part being, could he get into the difference between harm-based model for reparations versus lineage-based? It seems to me in the reparations community that that, that is kind of the, the split or the assessment um, that municipalities are facing. And two, um, in terms of validating or documenting a harm-based model um, and evidence or proof that you would need to pull versus um, with the lineage model, the genealogical records. Could you just discuss what the differences um, in those documentations would be and what the potential impact would be if municipalities chose one or the other? So I don't think that the dichotomy is between harms-based and lineage-based approaches to reparations design. Uh, by harms-based, I, I interpret that as uh, the identification of a set of atrocities that have been committed against the community, and then uh, you try to uh, calculate some amount that is due for each of those individual atrocities and then add it up to arrive at a uh, a, t a total figure for uh, for the compensation that's owed. Uh, you can always uh, precede that approach by saying there's a particular community that's eligible to uh, to obtain compensation for those harms, and so you could use a lineage-based criteria as a prelude to establishing a harms-based approach. So they're, they're not mutually exclusive. What, what is different is the approach that I've been talking about today, which is instead of trying to, uh, to calculate a sum of compensation that's due by adding up a price for each of the atrocities that have, been taken, have taken place, instead find a single critical indicator of the cumulative effects of those atrocities that can be measured economically. And that's, that's why uh, in, in the work that I've done with Kirsten Mullen, we've focused on the racial wealth gap as, as that type of indicator. So I would say that the distinction is between an approach, the harms approach being an itemization strategy versus uh, an approach that says you try to calculate this by finding a single uh, comprehensive indicator of the consequences of the damages. But, but either of those approaches can be preceded by defining an eligible population for, for compensation. And that could include the lineage standard. So, so the lineage standard and the harms model are not uh, not things to be juxtaposed against one another. All right. Thank and you for that. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Next up, we have Martin. I believe my question has already been answered. What I wrote was that what options do African Americans have if they don't vote Democrat, the Republicans win, and that's not good. 
if they vote Democrat, then they become trinkets, as Ms. Turner said. Uh, either way is not uh, satisfying. What options are available then? Did I, I think I understood him to say his question has been answered already? Is that, or is he asking a new set of questions? Yes, my question, I think, has been answered. Okay, yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Lisa, um, I think, is unable to unmute, so I'm going to read out what they sent in the chat. Um, Issa says, honestly, despite being pro-reparations all my life, I did not know the VA denied the GI Bill mortgages in the 40s, 50s, and education did not know oops, did not know the Department of Agriculture took farms from black families, that redlining was law, that northern cities had sundown laws, the whole state of Oregon was a sundown state. Um, and he says, there are too many details we do not yet no. So um, this seems like a comment, but if there was a response, I think that's he's open to that. <laughs> just just one side sidebar on the GI Bill. Uh, the GI Bill's educational provisions were not uh, applied differentially to the degree that the home buying provisions were applied. The difficulty with the education provisions was that there were a limited number of, of seats for the returning black GIs because of segregation in higher education and their, uh, their ability to only attend what was then a handful of historically black colleges. Uh, and so as a consequence, uh, uh, they they all could not take advantage of the GI Bill for the types of programs of study that they had in mind. Uh, and then, in addition, the agents who were uh, executing the GI Bill tended to channel the black GIs towards vocational programs rather than uh, degree-granting programs for, uh, for BAs or, or bachelors of science degrees. And they don't like what we keep to ourselves. All right. And then the last um, person we have in the queue um, is actually another um, special guest, Terrence Wynn. Um, we were speaking earlier about the United Nations, and Terrence um, actually in August was in Geneva, Switzerland, testifying before the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination um, about his experiences about mass incarceration in the United States about environmental racism. And so, Terrence, we're really glad that you are here today um, to join us and uh, share what's on your mind. So feel free to unmute and take it away.
because when the prison population blocked, it was the Democratic Party that led that charge. President Clinton. I'm a I'm a, a person that was a victim of that. That system. I did thirty years in prison from the age of sixteen up until I was forty six years old. And I felt the effects of that every single day when he signed the anti death penalty act. A lot of people don't know about that, but I can tell you firsthand about that. And Clint did a, a real disservice to, to the black community and, and in general, and specifically to the prison population, because it shut doors down for it. A lot of innocent people remain in prison because of something he signed into effect. And they use up crack the same way that the Republicans use up crack. So it's speaking out the, uh, two sides of the same mouth to say the same thing about the black community. It's like, we justify and doing whatever we do to you because y'all want to use this drug. This drug that our government brought to our, our community. And we suffer so much that we deal with our problems through drugs. We just try to numb ourselves to the pains and the problems that we face every single day. That other people, they got remedies for them. We, we cry out for remedies.